Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Bienvenue and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? How did we get here? How do I talk to my other contributors because they speak other languages? This is really confusing and I don't know how to translate this on the GitHub issue and it's not working. Ah, it's actually not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking with Toby Langel, who's calling us from Geneva, Switzerland. He's the founder of Unlock Open. Hello, Toby. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm quite excited. It should be awesome to have you on here. I'm quite excited as well. Besides you, our illustrious guest, we also have a few other panelists. Today, we have Alan Gunner. Hello. Pia Mancini. Hi, everyone. And Justin Dorfman. Hello. Hello. All right. So, Toby, tell us a bit more about Unlock Open. What do you do? So, Unlock Open is a consulting firm. I started uh, a really long time ago, but that moved into different iterations. What I've been focusing on for the last, I would say, three, three to four years at this point is essentially helping companies understand the value of contributing to open source and, and then get involved with it. So coming from the idea that using open source is really well understood at this point in, in companies, you know, why not use free software, right? And companies do that quite readily. However, when it comes back to contributing, you know, People are way more lukewarm. And I thought that trying to fix the problem of open source sustainability from that angle was going to be essentially more productive. So that's sort of how this focus on Unlock Open came up. Awesome. So going on for four or five years. So I'm really curious because I run a similar consultancy with nowhere near the clients you have. I see that you've worked with Google, Microsoft, Intel, Mozilla. That's awesome. How do you get in the door as a consultant to try to talk to people about how they should use open source, right? How, how do you pitch that to people? So that's a really good question. It's also a hard question to answer. I've been doing a lot of talking, a lot of uh, public speaking about this topic. And bit by bit, companies start to understand and then start to talk to you. Yeah. And you know, it's at some point that ends up in a contract. That said, I came to consulting with a really solid network before I was involved in, in the standard space for a long time in um in the web standards. And in the web standards, you do work in an environment where you have lots of uh, folks from lots of large tech companies working together. And, and it's a really good way um of building a network. So I guess th- that's awesome. And it makes a ton of sense. And I love that. And web standards are really cool. I guess my question is. Or to rephrase it, it's easy to pitch down the stack to you know lowly engineers about why open source is great. And they know, right? Engineers want to use open source because they don't want to have to write the stuff themselves. It's a whole lot easier to use a module that they can see online. But my question is, how do you pitch open source to people who don't know? And how do you convince people that your voice matters there so eloquently that they're able to actually involve you in their decisions? Because that's one of the hardest things to do at a company, right? is to pitch up and to figure out, to tell someone who doesn't know what open source is, listen, 
this will save us money and time and make our product better in the long run. Yeah. So I'm still figuring out the magic potion here, right? Frankly, it is not simple. I do not have a ready-made answer of this is how you, you know, this is how you should do it because that gets you in the door every time. What I've noticed patterns though. I, I first I started, I initially focused on companies that were really far away from open source, like, you know, even in far away from being like real tech companies. Yeah. Because I thought it would be that they could just leapfrog the whole, the whole idea and get, you know, while they were undergoing digital transformation, basically become open source companies at the same time. Right. And yeah. of course, like that did not work. So I, I think like, you know, the, the best strategy is to go with companies that understand the space and want to be involved with it, but then do not know exactly how to do it or missing bits and pieces. It is way easier to get those convinced. So you, awesome. essentially what I'm trying to say is to convince someone, you have to find someone that is convinced. I like that. And I'm really glad you actually mentioned that it's hard and there's no easy answer. I think a lot of the times on this show, we, we sort of put on our best face forward all the time. Like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, this is how it is. But actually it's really difficult to do this work. And it's really difficult to, to pitch to some people that open source matters. And so that's part of the story just as much as anything else. So awesome. I, I, I right. totally get that. I mean, I, I do want to say though, that there are things that companies care about and these are the things that you want to pitch. I mean, essentially if you're pitching, so this is really from a consulting perspective, right? So this is kind of not, not only about sustaining open source, but in general, if you want to be successful as a consultant, you have to understand how to move the needle for the client, right? And so you have to come to the conversation with things that are going to make the change that they want to have made. And usually for a company, it's kind of, it has a part that's a bit sad, but usually it's essentially about either spending less money or making more money at some degree, right? And so that is essentially what you want to focus on if you want to be able to run this transformation from that side. So how can open source help you save money or how can open source make you more money? Or essentially, like these are things that executives will understand and listen to. But it's not just as a consultant, I find. That's also just as someone that's part of a team, right? So as a contributor to an open source project, I want to have the maintainer know that my contributions are going to help them either work less or make the product better as well. Right. So that's really yeah. invaluable advice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in general, in life, you want to look at how transactions can benefit others. And again, yep. like I'm using a very loaded terms. It's, it's kind of hard. I find it really hard to talk about this in a way that doesn't quickly turn all of humankind and, and, and relationships into, if I give you this, I'll get this back. And it, this is right. I, and I, I honestly don't think it is about this. However, thinking about like the impact of what you do has on others is a really good way to get great outcomes for everyone. Essentially, it's like what's at the, uh, the heart of negotiation. So we, I guess we have like, oh, sorry, doesn't like to separate also, I guess, arguments or approaches because one thing is convincing a company, hey, you should use open source because it's going to help your bottom line or it's going to help, you know, make more money or spend less money. And another thing is to convince them that they need to contribute back. 
to open source, right? I imagine that that is quite a different set of arguments. So I focus only on the latter. I don't focus on the former because, I mean, you know, data shows right now that like every company like uses open source. If you if you're building software, you're using open source, and and that's. I mean, there's a compliance story, like, you know, the, make sure that you're using it properly, using the license properly, et cetera, which is not an easy problem. Like, it's actually hard to do right, but I, I don't have the legal training necessary to actually run that kind of, of, of work. And I don't find it super interesting, so I don't really focus on that. But no, contributing back, if you want to convince a company to do that, you have to show them what's in it for them, essentially. And so, you know, again, it boils down to bottom line and top line to some degree. I mean, you know, it's more than that. Obviously, uh, culture, brand, making people feel happy to work in a company. All of those are things that are critical for a company, right? I mean, you know, I don't want to reduce all of that to dollar amounts. But at the end of the day, for a corporation, it is really linked. So, you, you know, if you go to a corporation that does not understand the value uh, the financial value for them of having a great engineering culture, they will not understand the value of having a great culture of contributing back to open source. It's sort of the same thing, right? So you have to essentially pick your battles and find the companies that are the closest uh, to the, the summit and help them the, the last few bits. But essentially, yeah, I think it's the, you still, you still have to focus on their needs and, and how it's going to transform them and help them become sort of the companies that they want to be in the future. Is that, is that what you mean when you talk about how open source sustainability will come from like a cultural change within yes. the companies? Absolutely. And you, right. And right. I, have you, like, are you seeing that? Do you think we're making progress towards that? Like what's, what's preventing this cultural change to happen? Like, I mean, Microsoft is for me, like, you know, it's quite the example here also of how like a very deep rooted anti-open source culture can start to shift. I'm not saying it's like the panacea, I, but I'm saying the culture definitely shifted. I think this is a great question. And we are at a point right now where I think we have a number of large companies, essentially large tech companies that have understood the value of contributing to open source and that are leveraging it for their own benefit quite successfully. And we are at the point where uh, we need to, to cross the chasm. So move that from being something that is essentially something that adopted by a few really performant companies at the, at the helm of this effort, right? and move that to go across and, and, and just become more mainstream. And this is really hard. Like this is, uh, you know, th there's a whole book that talks about, about the issue of, of moving something that's from early adopters to mainstream. It is really difficult. And I think we're at that point. And to be honest, like some days I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure about how to do it. And some others, I'm like, this is really difficult. How are we, you know, how are we going to manage? But I think, Building a strong open source culture in a company is a similar transformation to sort of DevOps. And I feel like that's picking up. So I, I feel like maybe by sort of like piggybacking on other similar cultural shifts, will we have a better chance of making that just the normal way of doing business? 
And again, you know, if you if you look at how DevOps is is received in, in sort of like different, you know, in tech companies versus elsewhere, you know, there's a lot of differences, right? So, are you advancing the notion of DevOps as a gateway drug for all of this open culture? I love that idea. If you are, sort of, not. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent convinced about what I'm saying right now. I do, I, I do see similarities, right? So I've been reading, uh, starting to read a book called Accelerate that talks about uh, the benefits of DevOps culture to companies, really from a business perspective. And it is really interesting to see, well, first of all, the benefits that affect not only just engineering, but just how a company operates. Like It is truly sort of digital transformation, which to me is what an open culture can bring to a company. It's, it's way beyond just actually building open source, right? It's essentially building the practices, sort of like the, the muscle memory of working in a much more open way, you know, within the company and outside of it. And in Accelerate, there's a lot that's, that, you know, it, it talks a lot about how DevOps does, has similar effects. And the benefits of DevOps, as explained in that book, two companies, match quite a bit the benefits that I see open source make. So yes, I do believe that there is a, a link between these two things. And if not a um, sort of like a, a gateway drug, at least like we can take inspiration from that and see how that works. And we can probably also have a look at how this is moving forward outside of like pure tech and then, and, you know, all of these other verticals that are turning into tech companies, but focused on like health or ad or these different, these different aspects and see how, basically how it penetrates uh, these different markets. And if I imagine that, you know, a culture of contributing back to open source would probably follow similar patterns. So where did you get your kind of your background? So I, I'm looking at your notes. So you were in the Facebook's OSPO. You've been involved with W3C. You co-maintain the prototype JavaScript framework. So one talking point in the FOSS community, FOSS sustainability community, is project abandonment. Prototype JavaScript framework hasn't been updated since 2015. What happened there? What lessons could be learned for the audience? So the history of the prototype JavaScript library is a really interesting one because, yeah, there's so... I'm actually quite touched to talk about this. There's so many lessons to learn from, from what happened at, back then. I don't know how much those actually still apply today. But prototype is how I learned to code. I, I, I literally had essentially no coding training before I started getting sort of accidentally involved with PHP to build a website. I was a musician back then. To build a website for a band I was touring was because my brother knew sort of like PHP and, and web standards. And with his help, I built this website and all of my fellow musicians came to me and said, you have an amazing website. <laughs> like, can you build one for me too? And as anyone that's been involved with music knows, making a living out of playing music is really difficult. And so I had always been looking for sort of like a side gig. And I suddenly felt, well, this could be my side gig. And you know, quickly at that time, Ruby on Rails showed up, r- roughly at that time. And I just saw that and my 
you know, my jaw dropped. And I was just like, this is literally like, I've been struggling to build all of this with PHP for like, you know, it took us like a month. And now like, this is all ready to build. And that's when I had the idea of like sort of building uh, an app that would make it really easy for musicians to build their own websites, right? Uh, and so well, we tried to do it, but like, it was, you know, way too junior in, 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 in uh, development to, to succeed. But at that time, I built into Rails West Prototype, the JavaScript library. And so I, I, I just got completely fascinated by the level of, you know, uh, user experience you could build in web apps using this. It was just unbelievable. I, I remember like just you could drop like things into cart and, you know, just drag and dropping things on an HTML document was, it, it sounds really stupid today, but back then, like no one knew how to do this, right? It was like really fascinating stuff. And so I got involved with this. And the, the, so the funny thing is, I essentially learned JavaScript by reading the source code because there was no documentation. And I started contributing to the, to the library by writing documentation for it. We had a project with a few people that were really enamored with the capabilities of the library who started essentially documenting it. And we did that. And then we started to get more involved with the project. And as a result, you know, ended up co-maintaining it when Sam Stephenson uh, stepped down. And so that's also a really interesting story because it was really early in the day of open source being sort of a more mainstream thing, if, if I can put it that way. I mean, it was no longer reserved to folks that were sort of like diehard computer people. But I wasn't. I was sort of like a mix between UX and, you know, building stuff and, and vaguely coding. And so it took a lot of time for Sam to realize that he was burning out and just couldn't spend the time that was needed to give more, you know, give more authority to other people on the project. And right about that time, the other thing that happened is jQuery came over. So, you know, to some, to some degree, a new paradigm. And the funny thing, and that's, I think that's an, also, an, uh, for me, it was an invaluable learning point, is Prototype was really focused on building Web 2.0 applications. jQuery was all about enabling essentially everyone to just add bells and whistles to their website, right? And so our reaction was... Not condescending because we knew each other. It was a small, tight-knit community. We, you know, we, we were friends, right? But it's like, yeah, this is for like people that don't really know how to code. You know, exactly the same mistakes that uh, we had perceived from like prior generations to some degree. Like Dojo for us was for people that were like, you know, not practical in building like these super big applications, and we were like more lean, right? But then jQuery showed up, and we we're like, yeah, this is for kiddies, right? So you know, like it's it's so it's so typical. It's funny. But what was really interesting is essentially what happened is everyone started using jQuery to do all of these things. And so the sort of market moved from like this really small group of people building Web2 applications to a broader group, a way bigger group, right? Just adding interactiveness to everything. And so guess what happened? When people started uh, knowing jQuery really well because they had, you know, used it to add effects to their blog post. They were like, yeah, this is good enough to build a web app with, right? And so essentially, like, this is good enough is such an important concept for, like, showing the success and sustainability of open source projects that, like, it has stayed with me ever since. That's a great answer. Thank you. 
And I think it's funny because I used to do band stuff like in 2003 when I was oh, wow. in high school and I would do promotion and I would do flash. Oh, everyone remembers flash. But anyway, it's, it's funny how it's not funny, but it's just amazing how things have progressed over the years. And those who are just getting in the JavaScript don't really remember the pains that we had with cross browser compatibility. And I mean, it's bad. <laughs> You've worked with the W3C, you know, it's, it's bad as it is, you know, you know, people have interpretations of this different standards. So it was, uh, it was really interesting hearing that. And shout out to John Rizik, who created jQuery. He's yeah. a, 70% of the web uses jQuery, according to Built With. So it's pretty amazing. But thank you for explaining all that because, you know, it's just one of those things that is always talked about within this community is the burnout, the project abandonment. It's, I'm, I wasn't there to shame anyone or anything. It's just the fact of, life in the open source? Well, I mean, I think there's another important aspect too, is at least prototype was essentially built and designed as a stopgap measure, right? It was like, right. it, I mean, Sam was essentially trying to bridge a, a poor or missing standards implementation. And it was, you know, there was never this idea of like, this should be a thing in 20 years. Right. So I think this, this notion that we're building, well, that software has a life cycle is also an important one. So I, d I don't want to, I mean, sure, like, you know, looking back, there is a, a bunch of things we could have done better about sort of helping people off of prototype and moving them, you know, helping them move to whatever was essentially winning. But the truth is, like, who wants to invest time in something that's essentially losing? Right. This is this is like a common. This is a very common problem of sustainability in general. There's a lot of energy, and people are ready to do a lot of things for the rocket ship, because you also benefit personally quite a bit when you're investing your time in a rocket ship, right? But you know the sinking boat is like, yeah, well, bye bye, folks. Essentially, right? so I don't think we have good answers for this as an industry or as a community. But I think we should at least acknowledge it and make sure that we're aware of this when we make uh, decisions about what software to use or what stack to pick, that kind of things. Totally. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that you mentioned IE6 and, and you know, that story where like everything was in web development so difficult. I mean, my consulting, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about sort of what I was doing from a consulting perspective. Well, back then, I was essentially selling my services as one of the few people in the world that knows all of like the weird quirks of IE6. And, and that's also another interesting uh, lesson in sustainability is if you focus on platforms or software, well, you're on the thread mill. And at, at some point, like the hardly acquired uh, expertise in the domain is literally useless and can't be sold anymore. So... I, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I'm sure you will. But I remember the reason I would only build for IE6 is because I could I could change the color of the scroll bar so it could it match the the website. And I, a lot of bands that I worked with were so like adamant about it has to match. And I'm like, okay, well, okay, we're not going to use the Netscape or Mozilla. So it's just so funny how things have changed and like evolved and 
you're bringing so much nostalgia and it's just like so great. Yeah. I mean, nostalgia is good, but I also apologize at the same time. Yes, I agree. I'm sorry for putting out bad standards, but at the time, the scroll bar must match. But I mean, you know, we, we still have like, we need to learn from history and we forget to and, and, and an industry that's on such a, a, a growth curve as tech is was, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but uh, you know, there's so many more people in, entering the workforce in, in, the, in the field every year. Lots of people don't remember these times. And I, like, I really don't want to play the, uh, you know, um, the nostalgia card at all, right? But I think that there are lessons to learn. And you know, the, thing, the, the issues that we had, the, the browser wars, was IE6 being essentially blocking progress uh, for uh, a number of years, right? We can still face this, right? I mean, there are similar issues right now, and we want to be careful and watchful. And also, you know, the use of standards or non-standard APIs to gain market share is also very, very much a thing today. So that's also something that, that is at least something that we have to watch out for and be aware of. I think, I mean, this is one of the fundamental questions of what sustain actually means, right? Like, what do we talk about when we're talking about sustaining something? If, if, all, if all software has a life cycle and eventually it'll end up somewhere, then why, why bother sustaining it? So this goes right to the heart of like what we're trying to talk about here. And so I think one of the things I'm really picking up from what you're saying is that it's better to dedicate yourself towards an ideology of working well in the open, of working with other people, of trying to consistently not just stay ahead of the curve, but work in a way that, the, that what you do will matter later is a much better strategy than saying, being the person who really knows how to implement the shaded, you know, color bar and I, yes. does that resonate at all? It was important at the time. Well, yeah. And that was young also. Right. Uh, but, but I think, yes, a hundred percent. And I think this is true, not only of for individuals, it's also true of companies. So I'm a huge fan of DHH and the company now called Basecamp that was 37 signals back then, because it embodied for me an actually sustaining business model. To, to stay on topic, right? Uh, you know, something kind of dumb, but that as an individual or as a group of people, you're entitled to make a living, a decent living. You don't have to shoot for the stars and try to be the next Facebook or, you know, the whatever, the next unicorn. Nope. And you can just, uh, through uh, building a really good project and putting your heart and soul into it, make, you know, a reasonable, even a really good living. And not want to do more than that and not want to run after the latest fad, the latest trend. And one of the, the things that stayed with me from that time is a quote, I think it was from DHH, I'm not sure, but from, definitely from, from one of the team, essentially saying that you should be focusing your product, it was for a product, but you should be focusing your product on things that will matter through time. And he was saying, like, a fast website, a fast app is going to be valuable now in two years, in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, right? So focus on that. Don't, don't focus on making it like React or making it, you know, blah, 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 right? Just focus on things that matter long term. And I think this matters for individuals, too. If you focus on a framework or, you know, a particular language, uh, well, there's a life cycle to it, right? And at some point, 
at first you will be if if you play it well you will be you know the tide of that exactly like when when you join a a startup at exactly the right time it's you're going to benefit greatly if you were a react developer i don't know i don't know the time the timeline now but like 3 4 years ago and we're able to put out like content back then and build a few libs back then, the same libs that today would matter to literally no one, right? No one would care about that. That turned you like four or five years ago into a superstar. So that works, but it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do the, to have the time, the right timing. And it's kind of a luck, right? Whereas if you focus on things that are valuable all the time, regardless of you know, regardless of the language, regardless of the software, of the product, et cetera, uh, these skills stay with you and you can grow them. And what's really interesting to me is in software development, a lot of these skills are actually soft skills. Being able to be a team worker, being able to communicate properly, being able to express yourself in writing well, being able to speak well to a group, all of these skills are actually going to do way more for your career as an engineer or a developer than like being super good at fixing IE6 bugs. And that is also true of companies. So as a company, culture practices the ability to, you know, and we're, we're going to quickly jump into sort of like DevOps area here, right? The ability to fail really easily. The ability to like roll back stuff, all of these, the, the, the ability to building the ability to test things out really easily. All of this is going to be super effective to build a super effective company. You know, while you were talking about that, it just hit me. It's like, I think that's one of the keys to sustainability is not being everything to everyone, just finding that one purpose that you're supposed to do, not trying to get the whole market share. In you know, in the open source ecosystem, just focus on that one thing. Like DHH said, focus on being fast. Focus on getting updates, you know, regularly. And yeah, and, and I think one thing I DHH mentioned in one of his books, which always stuck with me, was there's a bakery in Chicago that they have enough to make bread for one day, and when they're out, they stop. So if it's at 12 p.m. They're done for the day. They don't try to be McDonald's and and get as much profit as they can for the day. They know what they're good at and that's what they do. And I think that could be translated to anyone in the open source community is you don't have to be everything to everyone. You know what you're good at and that's how you sustain your project by not burning out, figuring out how can I get more stars? How can I get on Hacker News? How can I do this? How can I do that? So good ideas. Yeah, I love this analogy uh, about the bakery. I mean, I'm I'm a very um, small business focused person, which is kind of weird when I essentially work with large tech corporations. But it's something I really value. A lot of what you're saying reminds me of Errol Balkin, who is another ideologue from London. He runs a small technology foundation, which is just two people, and his his Twitter feed is filled with stuff about you know how large tech is destroying privacy and, and, and destroying the world type thing. He's one of the first entry points I had into the idea that it's actually not just okay, but kind of a moral imperative not to try to become the next Facebook, right? But to just be small and, and work well and, and, and do things in a way that 
I mean, if, if you want to work really hard and, and do the thing and move to San Jose and get a studio apartment, you can do that. That's cool. I mean, I've done that, right? It happened. But at some point, I like being able to go to the bakery and actually buying bread, you know, and I like having that freedom. And so I decided that that's actually more worth more to me than working as a galley slave in Silicon Valley. You know, it's worth more to me. So. Well, it's, it's kind of like a band going to LA or Nashville to make it in music. You know, you, you could go to uh, SF or you could just stay in your hometown and go to play at the bar and make, you know, enough to survive, I guess. But it's just, there's so many different ways to look at it. And um, yeah. That's a really great comparison because a lot of what bothers me in, um, in tech and also in open source is the very real blockbuster aspect of success curves, right? You have the head where you have like five, 10 projects that are super successful. Everyone uses, everyone pays, you know, like uh, all of the teams are uh, full-time employees of large corporations. There's money flowing to them. It's like, great. And then, you know, after that curve, like after the, the, the head, like there's a really, 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 really long tail of mm-hmm. a small projects that are struggling. And this is very much what the music industry comes from. Like it's very similar to the music industry. So it is it's kind of hilarious that I left the music industry because of that problem and went to tech essentially because it was, I felt like it was a safe haven from a money perspective and ended up in open source, which is suffering from exactly the same kind of angle, you know, same issues, right? Yeah, no, it's, it, I'm so glad you picked up on that. Cause I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe that's uh, not what I should have said, but yeah, the music industry is probably something I always compare things to because that's how I started, you know, but it's just, it's just so funny how everything ties in. It's everything's the same in a way. It's just, you know, it's different people. Right. But everything is the same because essentially technology, uh, software and open source. I mean, if you consider that all of these things are you know, circles, one was in the other was the small, the smaller circles inside just growing and growing and pushing against the, the larger ones. Everything today is technology, right? And so it is, it makes sense that we're seeing the same kind of problems everywhere. At the same time, I mean, you could carry that comparison even further, kind of ad absurdum, like everything's the same because we all need to eat and we all get tired and we all get sleepy and we all get hungry and we're all kind of anxious. And that's, you know, we have to work with other people and wet wear is kind of annoying and it's, it's pretty tough. Yeah, that's a fair point. I'm coming at it from another perspective as well. Like I, I was a linguist, I was going to be an academic and I was looking at the, you know, doing a PhD and I was looked at how, what the route would have been. Like what's the career to break it big as a, as a headliner at, at Coachella as a, you know, which is basically getting tenure and it's just, it doesn't really happen. Right. So I'm like, I'll just switch to tech. It'll be a safer place for me to make money and chill out. And it turns out, oh, okay, there's the same sort of issues here. Yep. <laughs> no, so essentially life is hard. Life is hard. Yeah. This, and uh, I was going to stop us right like, before we got to that bit, because that's just like winding down. I think, I think this conversation has suffered from a common problem we have in this podcast, that we're so eloquent so early that we spend the next 20 minutes just trying to fill space. Because we covered a lot of it and. I think it was great. I think that one of the main things that came up for me was I think sustain might've been rebranded as resilient. And I think that might actually be a better word for what I'm trying to get at here, at least is how do you build resilient systems? How do you build open source that can, that can bounce back easy, that 
doesn't have to close down when it runs out of money, right? I just think it's it's a nicer word because sustain is kind of like, for me, it it means going to the top of the curve and then keeping that curve going as long as possible. But that's ignoring the life cycle of things. Whereas resiliency is more about, well, how do we move on to the next thing? How do we take what we've learned and improve upon? Given that we really shouldn't force you to grapple with long philosophical underpinnings of what sustaining is and that we've already done that in this podcast anyway, and it's been really good. I think now is probably a good time to move on to spotlight. But before we do that, you've been really eloquent. I want to make sure people know where they can find you, where they can find things you read or talk about, or where they can pester you with annoying DMs. Are you on the internet? Yes, I am. So I'm on Twitter. My handle is just Toby, T-O-B-I-E, because I'm old and was there when like, that handle was still available. You can find my company at unlockopen.com. And yeah, you can always, there's my email around. You can always email me. I'm, I'm happy to read email and answer the email. If I were to go to Bandapaki, would, would you be able to have whatever that, that thing is where you dip the cheese fondue? Because I, I know you live in Geneva and it's just such a wonderful city and I used to live there. So I'm just saying, if I visit, I, I know there are good bakeries. Can we have our own Versailles together? Let me know. I mean, when people, you know, there's not a lot of tech going on in Geneva. You know, some really old Java and Oracle DB maintenance and, and private banks. But outside of that, nothing, you know, not a lot. But, you know, when folks do drop by, I'm really glad to get to, to see them and, and go for like a local melted cheese dish. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Cool. I just wanted to make sure. I just feel like I should mention that, you know, Geneva is still the home of all these NGOs and like the UN and things like that. And yet, Tech isn't there. So there's still work to be done, which is just fascinating. I agree. I've tried to get a number of organizations to move headquarters here for that very reason. I think having yep. more tech organizations tied closer to human rights would be really good. So this is still uh, something I'm trying to do. So yeah, stay tuned. Keep up the good work. All right. So Spotlight. Justin, what do you got for us? So for this week, I have... Our first bonus episode with Dave Gandy, number 41. If you're hearing this now, it came out a few weeks ago, but we discussed Fawn Awesome 6, the donut diet, commitments, and more. I highly recommend checking it out because it was a really, really fun conversation. I'm going to send out big love to the Open Tech Fund. They have been so critical in the internet freedom and uh, human rights technology ecosystems. They were the first funder of Signal. They funded tour over the years. They've done a lot for projects like Tails, uh, and they are being buttressed on the roiling oceans of political unrest. And so we were feeling for them in these times. And so you can go to opentech.fund or saveinternetfreedom.tech, but Open Tech Fund, such a critical contributor to open ecosystems over the last decade. Awesome. Thank you. My spotlight is for Aurel Balkan, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. I think he's a really smart guy. Bills himself as a, what, what, what does he say? Cyborg rights activist, which is, I think, one of the best descriptions I've seen of someone's job in a while. You can find him at ar.al, which is a pretty sweet URL. And Toby, I've already pre-ordered your spotlight. What is it? So Nadia Ekbal just announced that she is writing a new book that you can already order. Unfortunately, only from Amazon for now. But Nadia, I think, has been really influential. And my thinking and a lot of our thinking around sustainability and bringing 
the, the, re- the real concerns of open source to, to people it was her precedent work. And so I'm really curious where that book is taking us because it's, it's taking like a, a quite a, a big turn, it feels, in how she's presenting uh, this whole space. I'm, I'm very curious to read it. I can't wait either. She's been working on that for, I think, five years, deep down in the foxhole for at least a year. Should be a lot of good stuff in that one. She also helped basically found Sustain. She was there at the, I think most of them, the first two, definitely the first one. And um, we'll have her on the podcast to talk about that in a future episode. So if you're interested, listen in, people of the good world of open source. Toby, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Take care. Thanks, Toby. Thank you so much for your time. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.